um, a comedian SNL sang stupid songs. Adam Sandler. Yeah. And um, pasty face English actor who played Benedict Stephen Cumberbatch. Hawking. He played Stephen Hawking, won an Oscar. Uh, Eddie Redmayne. Yes. He's not pasty. What's wrong with you? He's pasty. He's so cute. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Show Your Work. Hi, this is Lainey Louie. I write about celebrity culture at laineygossip.com, and I'm an entertainment reporter and talk show host. And I'm Duana Taha, a television screenwriter and producer. We're obsessed with the work of entertainment, and this is our deep dive podcast into the celebrity ecosystem. And the work that goes into your favorite shows, movies, music, and stars. Jared Leto really, really wants to be taken seriously. He found out the hard way, though, that when someone is better at your job than you, what are your choices? Plus, there are unprecedented moves that Harry and Meghan Sussex are making. So are they changing the face of royalty or are they making their way out? And when you're doing a remake, is it fair to stack the deck? Timothy Chalamet and Saoirse Ronan bring something to Greta Gerwig's Little Women that nobody else can. Kinda like to warm up a little bit. I mean, how do you feel about our new MO? I'd like that to be a thing, maybe. Do you guys play Heads Up? Heads Up is an app. You can, I don't know, it's a purchase app. It's not a free app. I feel like everybody played Heads Up past tense and, you know, they then listened to themselves play it for a little while, but it's kind of gone. But I love that it's going to keep on. You and I and also Kathleen are obsessed with Heads Up. I really love it because it's so quick. Yeah, I thought that we needed a little energy thing to start Mm -hmm. us off, to get us off on a high note. Yeah. Um, And it worked, right? Like, it feels fun. Well, we started fighting already because you were like, I'm so great at giving clues. And and you said that because you were implying, because I got a higher score than you. Yeah, because I give good clues. I give good clues, too. You just didn't know who Halsey was, you You take No, your clue was, and um, um, it's an anagram of Ashley. You know what we should do? Maybe at the end of the show, we should play... Uh, heads up live. Oh my God, that's a great idea. <laughs> to bore all of you, but also because you guys should let us know who is better at giving clues. Oh God, deck sack now. Right? Um, this like is you're gonna playing be, along. Yeah, this is going to be like a spontaneous Instagram selfie where it's like, oh, we <laughs> uploaded the 19th game that we played. But also, I I wanted to do it because, like I said, I wanted us to have high energy, but I listened to a podcast today where in the middle of recording the podcast, they had an earthquake. Come on. In the middle of the podcast. They were in Northern California. So things were trembling? Like they, all of a sudden, they were talking about whatever point they were making. And then it was like, oh, 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 doorway. I get, and they ran. And, right. And then when they came back, they were like, 
all shaking. So what, you were trying to mimic an earthquake? I was, I'm podcast? just saying. I don't like, want an earthquake, Duanna. I'm not suggesting that. But okay, when I was in, back in the days of, of radio and television school, they would tell you that one of the rules on radio is you have to do something new four days out of five. I'm like, we're not going to have an earthquake, but that's sure got my interest. You are that bitch who for... <laughs> actually want a fucking natural disaster. I didn't say that. And my empathies go out to the podcast that I was listening to. I'm pretty sure they were fine. But I just think a little spontaneity is super fun. Okay. Well, no. But I'm I'm into the heads up. I like the warm up. Um, If you haven't heard of it, get the app. Well, you won't like you'll be addicted. So give yourself some time. Apparently you're going to hear it at the end of the show. So I'm going to hold you to that now. Uh, shall we? We're Since here. We have to get to another game of heads up. So. I mean, yeah, we're here. We're doing it. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting week in the lineup, right? Because I think we both thought we would talk about X or Y topics and then things happen and suddenly we don't, right? Suddenly it's a whole new thing. So when you pitched this first story to me, uh, a Hollywood reporter story about Jared Leto reacting to the new uh, Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie. I'm not surprised you sent the article. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised you saw the movie. Well, you're going to have to see the movie because you um, need to see it as homework for award season. Sorry, Duanna. Yeah, but I mean, I'm surprised you ran out in October to see it. Like the operative word being homework. That's a movie you can put off for a while. Yeah, I put it off for week two. So it opened. I did not see it on opening weekend. I saw it on the second weekend. And I saw it um, on Canadian Thanksgiving, the Monday, where, you know, you're kind of tired and you're bloated. And I just went to a VIP theater and had a burger and just sat there and kind of like in my sweatpants was like, fuck, get over with. Now, let me ask you a question, because you often go to a daytime movie, especially a holiday weekend movie. Yeah, this was a matinee. I saw it at 4.30. Yeah, with a a friend of ours who I'm like, "Mm, I could predict how she would feel about this movie. She hated it too. Would you feel as though, like, do you think you would have felt differently if you'd gone with like, I don't know, a Joker stan, a Joaquin Phoenix super fan? Well, here's the thing. I used to be a Joaquin Phoenix super fan. I remember those days. I loved him in Walk the Line. I mean, look, everybody loved him Walk the Line. It was great. Yeah, well, I fell in love with him. It was He was my celebrity crush where I would have daydreams that I would interview him and he would fall in love with me. That was my thing. You obviously so, had never <laughs> seen an interview with him because he was uniformly horrible to everybody. I have interviewed him. And now you, but yeah. I mean then. Exactly. So, um, and so I'm not not a f- fan of Joaquin Phoenix. I, I appreciate Joaquin Phoenix's talent, but I... Like, I hate this movie. I think it's a miserable, mean movie. Um, Some people are saying it's good filmmaking. I don't think it's particularly interesting filmmaking. Um, The whole movie made made me, like, I was, I felt so itchy. It's such a dirty movie. Right. Anyway, but this is not about Joaquin Phoenix's film. It's about what this film did to Jared Leto. Well, it is. But before we get there, I just want to ask you a question because, you know, I guess the, I have a harder time enjoying movies or shows with people that I don't like. I just discovered that Modern Love on Amazon is directed by 
uh, that director who was horrible to Kira Knightley for no reason. Oh, yeah. And now I'm super mad about it. Mm-hmm. So it does, it's always in the back of my mind. So you Is it wa- Joe Wright? Uh, no, that's... Uh, that's, right, that's Atonement. That's a different guy. Modern Love, which is Amazon, is directed by John Carney, who... Yes. Like, basically okay. dined out on trashing Kira Knightley. Yes. Uh, on a film several years ago, and I've never forgiven him, and I'm really mad. Nobody else cares but me. I care now. Thank you. I do feel as though when when I like somebody, obviously I'm more disposed to like the project. When I don't like somebody, mm-hmm. it's a little harder. And so you always want it to be a project, a thing that swings you all the way over into somebody's camp when you weren't expecting it, right? Yeah. But you're saying this was not that. No, this was not that. I mean, I... I didn't like or dislike Joaquin Phoenix any less. Uh-huh. I, um, because for me, Joaquin Phoenix was doing what Joaquin Phoenix does best. That is my knock, if you will, on Joaquin Phoenix. I think he only has one lane. He does it very well, but he wasn't showing me something in Joker that I've never seen Joaquin Phoenix do before. Which, I- if you've seen two Joaquin Phoenix movies, <laughs> you've seen Joker or his performance in Joker. Well, I mean, when we were talking, when we were prepping, we were talking about Venn diagrams. And I mean, I yeah. think the Venn diagram of Joaquin Phoenix performances is basically a circle. It's overlapping, like it's a circle. circles on top of each other. That's, or whatever, it, that's what right? I'm saying. There's yeah. no, like, there's no distinct. Yeah. And there's no could, versatility. You could maybe argue that Jared Leto's uh, body of work is pretty close to that same circle, right? It's not a yes. whole lot different. Yes. And that's why we're here, because Jared Leto is uh, reportedly bitter as fuck over Joker. Yeah. That's a direct quote. No, it's not. (laughs) It's pretty much a direct quote. It's just uh, using synonyms for bitter as fuck. Right. How about that? Yeah, fair. But, um, so Jared Leto played Joker in Suicide Squad. The film was, Suicide Squad was terribly received, didn't do very well, and there were all kinds of reports um, of his behavior, like methody or whatever, while he was shooting. Like he would send rats to people. He would be a general fuck. He was being a dick on set yeah. in order to like establish his character or like be the Joker on or off. Yeah. Which uh, the Hollywood Reporter, this article that we're kind of referencing, indicates was almost his ploy to be like. Look how Joker-like I am. Look how much I need my own standalone movie. Mm-hmm. Correct? Yeah. So he had a standalone movie deal, and then apparently he found out that Todd Phillips was doing this thing with Joaquin Phoenix, and as you just said, he had his people, including his music manager, say to Warner Brothers, kill this movie, and they were like, no, fuck you, and then he sulked, and now that the movie is a huge success, not just domestically, but worldwide... He's having a suck attack because he knows he probably cannot step into the Joker role again because indelibly we associate it now with Joaquin Phoenix. And if we don't associate it with Joaquin Phoenix, we associate it with Heath Ledger. And if we don't associate it with Heath Ledger, we associate it with Jack Nicholson. (laughs) Bye, Jared. I mean, here's the thing. As pointed out, there's no love lost uh, between either of us for Jared Leto or for Joaquin Phoenix, but 
you know, you understand sort of where he's coming from. You have a role. You want to make it your own, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, We have talked on this podcast about career-making roles and also about the people who, despite being stars, don't have career-making roles, Scarlett Johansson. Um, So you kind of want to believe that one of these things is going to be your thing. And maybe he could have had that as a line on his bio, like he was the Joker, but now he wasn't even, like he's not even the most recent, most malevolent Joker. My favorite is what Sarah referred to him as when the Suicide Squad promotion was happening, and she called him third best Joker, which to me is hilarious. And he can't even claim third best Joker anymore, because if it's, you know, a dogfight between Jack Heath and Joaquin, then that's three, and nobody's talking about Jared Leto. But partly because, as this article points out, he was only in Suicide Squad for 10 minutes. Like, whatever all he shot, right. it was cut down to be a really tiny part of that movie. Because apparently the director, David Ayers, wasn't happy with his performance, wasn't feeling it, or for whatever reason. Like, he's talked about it, Jared has, on his own, like... Maybe, you know, what I've done in the past for Joker will see the light of day one day. But nobody fucking cared and nobody was hungry for it. Like, you know, that story came out when Suicide Squad came out that Jared Leto's performance was trimmed down to 10 minutes in the movie. He was like teasing people. Maybe it'll see the light of day. Maybe I'll get my standalone. But nobody was rioting, (laughs) saying... I need that Jared Leto Joker movie. I need it right now. We were like, okay, move on. And then when it was announced that Joaquin Phoenix and Todd Phillips were doing a Joker movie, everybody was like, fuck yeah. And so if you're Jared Leto, well, yeah, I mean, no more. Well, this is why I love this story because it is one part, as you point out, suck attack. Um, It is one part, the fucking vagaries of Hollywood, right? We all have career highs and heartbreaks or things that you really want to go well that just don't come to the place Mm -hmm. that you you want them to be. But there's a very limited selection of sort of things in any career where somebody is going to overtly do the thing that you did and do it better. Yeah. Right? We always talk about – I'm going to make you roll your eyes by referencing Broadway – But we always talk about whoever originated the role Mm, on Broadway, right? We never say, oh, so-and-so, who was the third to play the role on Broadway, fucking reinvented the wheel. We don't do that. Yeah. But essentially, this Joker movie has all but erased Jared Leto as the Joker from people's memories, particularly because he was hoping on on a standalone movie of his own. That's right. And... That's the thing. Like, as much as I have no love lost for that dude, I'm not sitting here waiting for Jared Leto's career to happen. At the same time, I go, yeah, that's a real particular kind of bitch because that doesn't happen in other industries where somebody can do the exact thing you just did. But the reason I pitched this to you is because I do think that this has application in the real world because... I think many of us can relate to um, either going up for the same job as somebody else or wanting a job that somebody else gets and inevitably having to concede that they did the other person did do it better. 
Well, yeah. I mean, in this version of things, it's like you chair the committee uh, one year and you do fine or yep. there are elements out of your control or whatever. And then the next year, somebody chairs the committee and they do a fucking awesome job. And even though like you want to run around being like, but, but I had yeah. elements that I couldn't do and right. I had things and whatever. And you can't do that because see above where a suck attack. It's a bitter pill. It is a bitter pill. And I think that, I think that it's relatable in, I mean, you can't relate. Not everybody can relate to Jared Leto being a fucking dick, but we hope is, not. Yeah. It, yeah. It is a reality. At one point in your career, if you care about work, you will encounter somebody who does the job you wanted or is doing your job better than you. I would argue at many points in your career, mm-hmm. if you are constantly challenging yourself and putting yourself out there and so forth, it's always going to be about, fuck, look at that fucking fucker. Yeah. And you see them kind of blazing up the right lane beside you, coming up from behind. Yeah. They shouldn't be as good. They shouldn't whatever. And then they whiz right past and you're like, fucking you. Yeah. But what can you do? What can you do? That, I mean, I'll answer what can you do, you know, sort of positively. But I will say in the case of this, I do think there's a particular Hollywood problem right now in terms of the remake of the remake of the remake. Mm -hmm. Like, these renditions of the Joker are not even five years apart. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, uh, you know, there's barely time to forget the first version or the second version uh, before somebody's coming to, to take your crown. It's like the Olympics a bit, right? Like you're the champion. Then it's like, sorry. So it does suck. There's no other way around it, especially when it's an overt comparison, right? Yeah. It's not like were you a better, it's not like were you a better leading actor in a film than somebody else. It's were you a better rendition of that particular character that everybody's obsessed with? And just being like, no, you just didn't get there. Well, I feel like in this case, we do have a sort of direct comparison because just like you said, this is, you know, a five-year cycle or so with these characters, the same thing happened with Spider-Man. Oh, absolutely. So Andrew Garfield was Spider-Man. And then like, I think it was even shorter, not two years later, it was Tom Holland. And I thought Andrew Garfield was a really good Spider-Man. I think Tom Holland is a really good Spider-Man and... We're not sort of getting negative, or we didn't get negative about this Spider-Man thing. Um, Andrew Garfield wasn't being a sucky pants. The way Toby Maguire was. Toby, Ma- <laughs> Toby Maguire did get how many Spider-Mans did he get? Who cares? I think he got four, like three. I think three, at least three. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like, in particular. What do you do was the question we were asking, right? Yeah. Like, look, I, I get, I, I guess part of what I'm saying is this is happening more quickly than it ever has in Hollywood. It used to be that if there was a biopic, there would be 20 years since so-and-so last played so-and-so. And I'm sure that yeah. you referenced Walk the Line. I'm sure Reese Witherspoon's daughter is going to play June Carter Cash in 15 years. And we'll all be like, oh my God. But the... The pace is so fast. But yes, the question is, what do you do? And the answer is not to have a public suck attack in The Hollywood Reporter. Well, let me ask you this because you brought up Broadway. Yeah. In Broadway, this is just how it is. So 
There was the original cast of Hamilton. Yep. There we go. Our first Hamilton mention of the season. Of the podcast. I'm pretty sure I got one in last week. Oh, did you? <laughs> so there was the original cast of, again, Hamilton. Yep. And then like Lin-Manuel Miranda and Leslie Odom Jr. can't do it forever. So they did it for what, a year and a half? They probably all told, I mean, it's longer with previews, but call it a year on Broadway okay. or just short. So, just and shy. then of course they're so talented, they have other opportunities and then somebody else takes over and you don't get this kind of, well, are they going to be as good as Leslie or Lynn? Oh, or- you do. I mean, okay. among you? theater nerds, for sure you do. Among theater nerds, but the fans, you compare. But like among the actors, they just know in on Broadway, this is how it goes. Oh, look, if I'm an actor, if I am a, you know, work-a-day Broadway actor and I get the chance to play one of those roles, their shine is, is on me. Does that make sense? Like mm-hmm. there's almost a, the difference is that there's, you don't have to reach that bar. Right. You're never going to be that person. Yeah. So you just get to be honored that you're playing the same role that they did. Right. I don't think there's maybe one or two exceptions, but in general, nobody says, oh, so-and-so who played the role seventh in a five-year run on Broadway is much better than the person who originated the role. It doesn't happen. You talk about the person who originated the role, but that's also almost maybe freeing. You know? Yeah. Because you don't have to top them. The difference here is that Joaquin Phoenix and um, and Jared Leto are arguably contemporaries, arguably like… They are. Around the, the same, same age. same yeah. age, same brand, yeah. competing for the same other roles, right? Like, I don't know if, for example, the script for Dallas Buyers Club went to Joaquin Phoenix at some point, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised. Sure. Right? Yeah. So… And Joaquin Phoenix was at one point being considered for Brokeback Mountain. So there's the Heath Ledger Joker connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. There's a, it's different. You know what I mean? There are, um, I, the Hamilton that I saw who I loved is a guy named Donald Weber Jr. uh, Who's awesome and charismatic and fun. He was never being considered for the things that Lin-Manuel Miranda was and is. It was never happening. So it's not like you're in a position where you're competing. It almost like I'm more thinking about like the grade six spelling bee, you right. know, where your rival who you've been rivaling against this whole time gets the thing that you wanted. Whereas in many other cases, you would never be among them. Or sometimes we've seen it at the Oscars or Globes or whatever, where when it's a year for best leading actress, where there are four really established talented people with long careers and then there's a nod to like a young upstart they're like you see them in their seat doing the face that basically means like I can't believe I'm even here like please don't say my name in the same breath as Meryl Streep right and that's almost freeing that you don't have to compete with them I wonder though too if it went wrong for Jared Leto not after his run as Joker but even before it started sure like A guy who gets on set and is sending rats to people, you do it not just to rattle and to have an effect on your co-stars, but I believe you do it so that that story gets out. Yeah, of course, but it's performative no matter what. Exactly. You do it for whatever the effect it is on set, and you do it in the hopes that 
there are going to be stories when the movie comes out. Jared Leto was so committed to this role that he did X, Y, and Z. Similar to Joaquin was so committed to this role that he went hungry and look at his body and he starved. Similar to, I don't know, like Christian Bale was so committed to this role that he did this and that and the other. It's, it, it, he was hoping that it would become part of the lore, which would turn into legend of his performance as Joker, and it backfired from the start. And I, I wonder if we look and ex- if we examine the whole strategy when you take on a role like this, especially when you're stepping into the shoes of somebody who um, is gone too soon and won an Oscar for that role, if, <laughs> when you throw it down like that, it is a risk. And it was a miscalculation, Yes. Of course it is, but part of that miscalculation, you're right, the miscalculation happens before you ever get there in over-identifying with that role, right? Like now I'm back in grade six again. If you don't get the, if you don't win the spelling bee or if you don't get the lead in the play or whatnot, you've been imagining yourself in that place, in that role, and you've been visualizing it and going, oh, I can taste it. And if it doesn't happen or if somebody comes along Mm -hmm. and does it better than you, your whole self-image is shattered. Yeah. If and when somebody comes along and does the thing better than you, the number one thing you have to do is the opposite of this. Don't pout in public. You have to pivot. Yes. He needs to shock us with like, go play a family man. Yeah. Go do a, like some sort of a, I don't know, medium lighthearted comedy Mm -hmm. or something. Do something else so that you're not just the lesser than Joker. Yeah. But it's like, oh, I can do other things also. Have I told you the story before or told on the podcast the story of I I went for a job before I started doing this at Covenant House. They listed for a job for a development officer, mm-hmm. which is a fundraiser, essentially. Okay. And... um. I thought I had a great interview. I know they liked me, but when they called me back in, in person, they told me that, no, no, sorry. Um, I did the interview. I thought it went really well. At the end of the interview, I said, if you don't think I have the experience for this job, I'm okay with that, but I really want to work here. Mm -hmm. So I hope that even if I'm not successful, you can think of me for something else. Right. I did not get that job. Mm-hmm. It went to someone who eventually became a good friend of mine. Hi, Justine. Um, but they did like me enough and were impressed by what I had said at the end where they, they didn't necessarily create a job for me, but they found a way to fit me in. Mm-hmm. The pay wasn't the same. It wasn't as high. The title wasn't as high. It was a lower title, a lower position. But they still offered, to, offered it to me. I took it. And within a year, I got promoted to the job that I was originally um, interviewing for. Right. And so what did that teach you? I'm not going to lie and say that, because I didn't know her, right? Of course. So we started at the same time, that I didn't sort of see how I didn't measure up or how we measured up. Who was this person who beat me out for this job? Like, I still remember that. I'm a competitive person. Of course. So- for sure. I, I showed up and in those first weeks, I was like, what is she doing? It's better than me. Whatever. But in the end, I had to concede internally. And that's the most important step to, con- like, to really accept it for yourself. 
yeah, she is more experienced and she's really fucking good at this job. But I can be really good at a job that I'm really good at. And you move on from there. As you said, you pivot. Well, and also you use it to your advantage. I mean, I had a very similar experience. I went for a job uh, once that I deeply wanted and uh, they called me and said, you know what? We had to go with somebody with a little more experience, but we think we're going to have something opening up soon. So keep in touch. You know, that sort of like yep. blah, blah, blow job thing yeah. that they say. And I kept doing it. I yep. kept following up and uh, I wound up with a job there. Uh two and a half months later, not mm-hmm. long at all by that extent. And uh, with the same title and the same gig as that person I had lost out to. Yeah. If you don't think that person was my pace bunny. Yeah. If you don't think I looked at that person every day and went, okay. Yeah. All right. You're doing that. I'm going to do more. Mm-hmm. You're doing that. I'm going to work harder. Not because I was trying to compete with that person in particular. Yeah. Uh, who also became a close friend, but in that way of like, all right, let's go. This is what's required. Let's see how much better I can be. I think this is where you and I have always talked about, like competition can be really motivating, really exciting, um, really amazing. If we were in a slightly different context where every 35-year-old to 45-year-old actor plays the Joker at some point. Yeah. The way that, you know, every actor plays Hamlet sooner or later, Mm -hmm. right? Which, is the Joker Hamlet? (laughs) It's becoming, isn't it? A little bit. Yeah. Um, You know, then it would sort of be a marker. My Hamlet is this. My Joker is this. Yours was that. And you can use it as as a guide and as a goal to get to. But, yeah, having the public suck attack only serves to underscore how inferior you clearly were, which you know because you tried not to get the movie released at all. Just a sidebar thirst moment. I, what you just said, I don't know if anybody else has said it, but that was so brilliant, at least to me. I've never heard it. So can you just tweet this? Is the Joker Hamlet? I just think that that is... Um, yeah, I'll take that. I'll just be thirsty for you. But Thank you. Because I didn't say it, I can't thirst it myself. No, I appreciate you <laughs> thirst boosting me. And uh, yes, I will take my appropriate credit for it. Well, I listen, I have always, along with you, defended competition when the conditions are fair. Absolutely. Right? That's a which great is, context for it. Yeah. Right. Which is why people seem to be quite okay with competition, especially for women in a sporting environment, because the conditions are fair, right? You're either on a court or whatever. You have referees, you have a set of rules. They're less comfortable with women competing in the workplace because at times the conditions are not set up to be fair. Like you only have two women competing for one seat at the table. I get that. But in general, generally speaking, um, for women, competition can be good. As you said, pace bunny. Yeah. And it can be good women or men, right? Like all of you who are listening know that person in your office, in your workplace, who is annoys you a little bit, but also partly annoys you because their ideas are good and they usually work. And you kind of oscillate between being annoyed by them and being impressed by them. And I think that's only good, yeah, to look at somebody and go, okay, all right, that's the gauntlet you're throwing down. 
I can yeah. make that. And if you can't, and that's okay, there's no shame in that. You shouldn't be looking at the CEO and being like, I can be better. You work until you get there. I think it's very effective. And yeah, it doesn't have to mean, and we hate each other and we're competing for things. Sometimes it does mean that. Sometimes it does mean that you get the top spot in the, you get your piece in the top of the show or you write the script that I wanted to write or whatever. But if you're both working to make each other better and if you're both benefiting from looking at each other's styles, that can work. What doesn't work also, and I think we know this, but it's worth saying out loud, it never works to make yourself into that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you say that like, I don't think people know that, or I think that that is a foible of uh, maybe young women in particular. Um, You know, you're like, oh, they're so forthright in meetings. I'm going to be so forthright in meetings. You can't do that. No, you you can't shape shift. No, you have to, exactly. You have to be you and do it your way um, while still going, I can do this as well, or I can pull myself up to that level while being me, doing it in my way. I will say, you know, related to the Batman DC universe, the other thing that pisses me off about this story is, first of all, now that it's out, by the way, Jared Leto's people have denied that this Hollywood Reporter story is true, of course they're going to deny it. Uh-huh. And they're going to deny it because it makes him look bad, right? On so many levels, but two of the levels where it makes him look bad is that um, when you when you do this, when you want to kill a project, it means you're threatened. And when you're threatened, it means you're insecure. And when you're insecure, it means, well... All those things. So yeah, there's only one. reason. There's only yeah. two reasons to kill a project: if you're going to lose money, mm-hmm. or if you're going to lose face. face. Yeah. Um, but for me, even though he looks bad, and this is an embarrassing story for him, I don't think it's going to have any consequences that are meaningful. And the reason I say this is because I'm going way back here. Like for a lot of people, this is historical gossip. Um, there is an actress, her name is Sean Young. Yeah, you are going way back. And Sean Young very famously wanted the Catwoman role so badly. Do you remember this? Of course. I, I mean, I, I remember it from lore because yeah. to borrow from our friend Kathleen, I was in diapers, I think, at the time. <laughs> but this is such a famous Hollywood casting or want-to-be-casted story. She wanted the role so bad, she dressed up as Catwoman they didn't give her the job, but that's story- Well, she dressed up as Catwoman and went to the director's exactly. house, right? Like Which, it wasn't just, she wasn't just walking around the streets in a sure, Catwoman suit. Exactly. And she went to like basically convince them, I am this person. Which when you look back in retrospect, um, so what? Like haven't we all kind of dressed up for the part and done whatever we wanted or done whatever we thought was necessary to get it? Yeah, it's fucking sexist that that's even a story because, or sexist or something else that I can't quite put my finger on, like almost anti-brown noser or anti-trying. Like, sure. uh, you know, it's ironic that that was It's like the, Nirvana, like that, yeah, Cobaini. That was the version yeah. that went to Michelle Pfeiffer, right? Yeah. Who, if anybody ever didn't give a shit about her career, it's Michelle Pfeiffer, right? Right. And she's a great Batwoman. Sorry, she's a great Catwoman. I'm not disputing that. What I'm saying, though, is that that story stuck with Sean Young. Yes. And it 
really had a negative impact. It was seen as such an embarrassment and such a try-hard moment and such like, uh, you don't do this, that she was punished for it. Now, I'm not saying Sean Young didn't have other issues, but for the sake of this story, that is the thing that Sean Young is most known for. Well, and I would go further and say that that is, it's almost a leftover thing in Hollywood that the rest of the culture is shucking off now. There's a book that I love uh, called The Geeks Shall Inherit the Earth, written by Alexandra Robbins. And it basically, it follows some fringe teenagers in high school and talks about how they will, uh, you know, being a geek, being a nerd is now something that is lauded and beneficial Mm -hmm. and it's going to do well for you. Yeah. Hollywood is one of the last places to kind of get on board with that. that. It's almost like a leftover part of bullying culture. Because of course, when you say that, when you say, oh, she was deemed too try and too earnest, you know who I think of immediately. What's my first reference for that? Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway (laughs) at the Oscars. People complained and bitched that she was too try and she was too this. And it's like, what are we doing? Why are we maligning people for wanting things and for trying hard to get them? And for taking their fucking swing. That's the other thing. If Jared Leto had taken his swing at the Joker and it had not gone as well as he wanted, it has not been as big a success as he wanted, no harm, no foul. It's the pouting and stomping around afterwards, James Franco, that makes you look like you are A, pouting and stomping, and B, like you have nothing else going on. Like you don't have anything else to do that you're still pouting about. That was supposed to be my Joker movie. Go do something else. Or a James Franco pouting like, oh, she was so eager. I couldn't do anything. Also, you already have an Oscar. Like, you know, it it wasn't like he's so hard done by that this knocked him out of, as you're mentioning, work for the next 10 years. No. But it did knock Sean Young out of work for forever. Well, see above where sexism. Yes. Yeah. So I just kind of, I, I wanted, I just came to, like, I mean, I actually couldn't remember the Sean Young thing until we were just talking about it and other actors. And it's just really interesting. I, and I mean, I don't have to say this, but I will. If this was a story about an actress who found out that somebody else was playing this and that and the other. And P.S., like the Janis Joplin thing has been going around forever. And I think pretty sure there are five Janis Joplin's right now. Like Amy Adams is one of them and somebody else and maybe Renee Zellweger. Don't roll your eyes at Amy Adams right now. It's not about that. But, (laughs) and I'm pretty sure Renee Zellweger is another one. And like if one of those women had a fit about calling the other studio and being like, you can't, you have to shut this down and I don't want this to happen or whatever. I mean, we would be collectively, not just you and I, but collectively, we would be like, how dare she? Oh, not for nothing. Everybody would be like, that crazy bitch is so unhinged or whatever. And yeah, uh, here's the thing, though, that I think, and this is what it really comes down to. I said earlier, and I maintain that it's one of my favorite things I've said on this podcast, now I am stroking myself on the back, that Scarlett Johansson has not had a career-defining role. I, you said it and then I thought about it while you were talking. So I had to, you know, and I agree. I would argue that even though he has the Oscar, Jared Leto has 
also not had a career-defining role after Jordan Catalano. And he knows it. <laughs> and he would hate it. And if he you, would hate it. you said to him, your career-defining role is Jordan Catalano, that's how most people, like, that's the, the movie where we can recite the most lines, the outfits are the most iconic, whatever. He would throw you out of the room. Hate it. Yeah. He has had a band. Nobody yeah. remembers the name of it. He it's won… 30 of Mars. 30 Seconds to Mars, but right. still… He won an Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club, but tell me the name of his character. Go. Three, two, one. Nope. Right? <laughs> no. Nobody remembers. Nobody knows it. Yeah. Who, like, the people who won their Oscars for those iconic career-defining roles, you know them. You remember them. I'm not saying he didn't deserve it. That was a good goddamn performance that he gave. It was great, but it wasn't, it didn't stick. It, mm -hmm. He didn't become Jared Leto, the Oscar winner. Right. And that's what this is about. He wanted the Joker to define him. He wanted it to be Hamlet. Now I'm just patting myself on the back again. <laughs> um, and that's what the pouting is about, is going, I don't have that thing yet. You referenced Brokeback Mountain, and Brokeback Mountain was already a career-defining role for Heath Ledger, and then he went and did it again with The Dark Knight. Yeah. And Jared Leto doesn't have that, and that's what's making him bitter. And if we're getting into competing with one specific person, I'd argue that Joaquin Phoenix has had two already. Um, probably more than that. Probably more, but yeah. at least two. Yeah. And now three. And therein lies the the rub. You know, that's why oh, he's so look bitter. Look at you. What did I do? Therein lies the rub. Yeah, therein lies the rub is from Hamlet. Oh, oh, Isn't all right. It? Hang I, on. I was just being fancy in general. Look at you. Therein lies the rub is from Hamlet. I did, did you not, mean that? I didn't. I did not even know. I swear. Look, you know me. Had I been trying to be clever, it would have been a Hamilton reference. Okay. Isn't it from Hamlet? I don't think it's therein lies. I think it's the, there, there's the rub. I looked it up. But yeah, that's, that's it. There you go. Yeah. I mean, we can't top that. So why don't we take a break? And when we come back, Harry and Megan. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, so I have to say I thought I'd have to work harder to sell you on this one. Here's the thing. You and I have decided in our friendship and our workship or whatever to divide and conquer on certain topics, right? Like, right. I'm sure everybody does this. Yeah. Like, there's certain stuff I'm going to take care of being the know-it-all on, and there's certain stuff you've got. And royals are squarely in your court, and I'm happy to have you school me. I know I need to know, but I'm also happy to have you do the work on that front. I really just want your opinion on this situation. And we've covered the gossip on the site about Harry and Meghan and the royal family 
and their whole situation. Specifically, what I want to focus on here is the strategy of how they've been playing it with this situation, with the lawsuits, their announcements, this documentary, what was revealed in this documentary, what the short game is and what the long game is. So let's talk specifically about the documentary right off top because I think that it only aired, it was Channel 4, right? It was ITV. It was ITV. So that aired in the UK and anywhere else that gets ITV. Um, To our knowledge, has it been picked up by a North American distributor? Is somebody going to air it? ABC is going to air it uh, tonight, uh, which is when this podcast is being posted, Wednesday, October 23rd. Right. Um, I don't know if they're going to air it in the same way. The documentary, Tom Bradby Mm -hmm. is the host of the documentary. It's about 48 minutes without commercials. And And so I don't know what ABC is going to do to like Americanize it, but he's in it. You can see his person in it. Right. And I see what you're saying because they could quite easily uh, record a top and tail and kind of revoice it, right? And be like, Tom Bradby has more. Yeah. And then they cut to him doing the interview. Right. Um. And so this is notable for a number of reasons, right? Like that this documentary, uh, before we get to the strategy and all those things you want to talk about, um, this really hasn't been done, right? Like what, let's go back to say uh, the late 80s to early 90s, pre the Diana years, if you will, pre Andrew Morton and all that. There weren't really like royal life documentaries. You got the Queen's message. Yeah. You got like maybe the press are invited to see uh, the princes waving at a thing. I mean, I think they had those little films that maybe would air before a movie. You know how they used to do that in the old days? They'd but that was like, like a- World War II. <laughs> yeah. Or And so they would have little snippets of the royal family, like, look at the queen and her children in the garden. But it wouldn't, like, no, not a documentary the way we know it to be now. Uh, Since the Diana era, yeah, there have been royal documentaries for sure. The queen just did one, like, a year ago. Well, she did that interview, right? The one that we still, I I will never forget. And was it? Diana? Yes. Uh, Oh, yeah. Was it Martin Bashir? Yeah. And she, he asked her about, I think it was uh, James Phillips, who she was having an affair with. James Hewitt. James Hewitt. I'll never forget her going, yes, I adored him. Like, just that (laughs) confession. The way she did it, too. It was so dramatic. Yes, I adored him. Like, just that, (laughs) that, but it was also very, she wasn't hesitating. She wasn't biting her nails. It was very straightforward. But nonetheless, the documentary, okay, the Queen did a documentary last year. It wasn't like, oh, hi, here's my strife. Yeah. It was like. <laughs> yeah, here are my trees. Like she talked about trees. corgis and trees. Yes. yes. And so Harry and Meghan, and if I'm not mistaken, I've already lost the name of the guy who you have said has made it. Tom Bradby. He is like a friend of theirs, like a legit friend, right? Yeah, he's known them for like, or he's known Harry and William for many years. He got the first interview with Kate and William. Mm-hmm when they announced their engagement. So uh, while I was paying attention to other things, while I was keeping up on the cast changes in Hamilton, uh, was this documentary, was it known that this was happening and that it was going to be kind of bombshelly and incisive? The documentary was filmed, of course, during their tour of Southern Africa. And so I think on like the second to last or the last day that they were there, 
there was an announcement that there would be a documentary forthcoming and that it would be airing like in a couple weeks. But that's kind of my point. Like in a couple weeks is the new normal, right? Not when it used to be like, oh, six Next months year, from now. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. So basically, no, this was a new-ish piece of news, right? Yeah. I mean, I you're right. And I love that. You're, I didn't think about this in that much detail, but the turnaround time for sure mm-hmm. is they could have held it. And the fact that their turnaround time has been so quick is something for sure. Which is now where we get to kind of one of your points, which is when it is airing, there's no particular reason why it had to air uh, last Sunday night, right? No. It aired at a time when, as you've pointed out on the site, um, William and Kate are doing like a goodwill mission in Pakistan. Yeah, not goodwill implies yeah. like more. They're on a foreign mission representing the UK government, the British government. For right. Sure. Um, and so now nobody's talking about that anymore. No, they concluded their tour on Friday, mm-hmm. and 48 hours later, Harry and Meghan's uh, documentary airs. And typically, you like to let royal things breathe. Like they don't like to step on each other, or that's how they used to do it. That was the protocol. Correct. This is not that. No. And then this documentary, oh, yes, there's somebody following us through Africa. Again, this is not Harry and his elephants. No. This is like, fuck all y'all, we're miserable. Well, there is a lot of elephants. Sorry, like- I got to call you out because <laughs> I, I, you are never more shy and retiring and embarrassed. You are never more embarrassed than when I breach royal <laughs> protocol. <laughs> Even though we're at your kitchen table. <gasps> no, there I were said some elephant. Yeah, but I said we're miserable and you almost shrank into your shoulders like Duanna. Don't say that. No, Fine, there, there were, were elephants. Some elements, and yes, there was a focus on what their work was. Like definitely there was care put into spotlighting the issues going on in South Africa and in Botswana and the conser- um, and the conservation efforts that Harry's been doing. But there was also a, a decent amount of time devoted to their feelings. Dude, their feelings. had it been about Botswana and elephant conservation, we wouldn't be talking about it. This yeah, would be, not here. It would be like a, in sure. a video almanac somewhere. Yeah. Okay. So they do a documentary and they're like, yeah, we're hurting. Yeah. This, it's hard. Yeah. It hurts. Correct. We don't want to live here anymore. Uh. uh that is the takeaway that some people are taking. There's yeah. a paraphrase, yeah. but not by much. Why? Why do this? Yeah. No, I'm asking you. Like you, I'm looking to you as my expert. Mm-hmm. Why do this? I think definitely it's an emotional reaction. It's like, fuck this. We've had months and months of this targeted attack. This is what's been happening to us. And now we are with a member of the media who we trust and... We want to get this message out. Plus, we're also suing these British tabloids, and we haven't been on camera yet explaining the feelings, the hurt behind why we're mounting these lawsuits. So we might as well use this opportunity where there's a camera in our face and combine that with the on-paper lawsuits to give a rationale as to why we're doing this. Um. Yeah, okay, but this is not done. 
No. This is not, like, I know, I know that we know this is not done and this is, yeah. but I think what we got to talk about is if we're talking about the work of royals and people kind of roll their eyes and like, haha, the work and so forth, <laughs> we have to talk about what is the benefit to all this protocol breaking. All we talked about before they got married was how much she would have to do mm-hmm. to adhere to all the rules, right? While disrupting them a little bit. Like, uh, yeah, we said, but, but you know, remember when she closed down her lifestyle website Yeah, and she left skid and she left suits and all these things, it was all about like, here are all the things you have to do to adhere to protocol, right? Yep. Um, so what's happening? Are they, did they have baby Archie and be like, you know what? Fuck protocol. Or is it, is, do you think this is a fuck protocol or is this, are they trying to reinvent what it is to be in the Royal family? I think both. I think it's a little bit of fuck all of this, how you're supposed to act, whatever standards are placed upon us. I think also it's, um, in doing so, this is a modern way, our way, the Sussex way of being royal. I guess I just wonder what for. And I don't say that in a bad way. I don't care. There are, if you go one inch into like the coverage of this in the British media or whatever, there are people going, oh, I love them. And then people going, they've got to earn it. You know, like I don't have a an emotional tie either way. But I think about uh, people who have launched sort of similar press onslaughts and it's to a real end, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's very clear what they want. I don't know what they want. Do I need to know? Does it matter? No, I think that that's a really good question. And um, there has been speculation about what they want. It could mean that they want to live elsewhere. Right. That they want a permanent base that is away from England. But when uh, What's-His-Head abdicated the throne mm-hmm. uh, for Wallace Simpson. Right. Um, dude who then, uh, what's his name? The Duke of Edward. Uh, he married Wallace Simpson. King and Edward. thus Bertie uh, yeah. became the king, right? Like you watch the King George speech. and so forth. Of course, everybody did. <laughs> But like, yeah, but they all change their names anyway once yeah. they become king. So it's hard to keep track. Right. He just up and left. Mm-hmm. Like there's a sentiment where you might go, okay, if you want to leave, just leave. Like yeah. he's not, Harry is beloved, but he's not that important. Not right. in the chain of succession or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. They could fuck off and go live somewhere and ain't nobody care. Yeah. Or, and yeah, he's sixth in line or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Or do you think that there is some, because there's been all this talk about how they, even more than than William and Kate, were supposed to revitalize the monarchy and keep them from being dethroned by the British people and so forth. Do you think there's pressure on them to stay? Well, I don't know that there's pressure as in, you know, Her Majesty is calling them and ringing the bell and being like, I need to see you. And then when they get there, she's like, have some tea, and I need you to stay. I'm not sure the pressure exists that way. However, I just I just want to take a pause and think about the queen going, could you make a TikTok? Like, just like having them engage yeah. the young people. Um, however, I will say that the monarchy's 
goal is always stability and existence. Like they they need to remain royal, right? Mm-hmm. There are many people, not as many as people who like the royals, but there are many people who don't think that England needs a royal family, that it needs a monarchy. And so... Well, and they exist on the benevolence of the taxpayers. That's right. So they have to justify their existence um, to keep their fucking castles. Mm -hmm. So for her, stability, consistency, being constant has always been the priority. I'm talking about the queen. And part of that is also keeping the Commonwealth strong. So you know that there are like 52 countries in the Commonwealth. The sun never sets on the British Empire, blah, blah, blah. Whatever. And so... There are many countries in the British Commonwealth. I think there's something like 19 or 20 countries um, in Africa alone in the Commonwealth. And these are nations that are looking for newness, looking for reflection of themselves, looking for modernity. And for the Queen, definitely Harry and Meghan have a certain asset, a certain value, especially in parts of the Commonwealth. And also... I think with the younger generation, right? Oh, for sure. They're look like what's a 10-year-old doing like caring about Prince Charles? No. Ain't nothing. No. Frankly, what's a 10-year-old caring about William and Kate? Nothing. Sure. Nobody had them on like the 10-year-olds are not old enough to have had him in teen beat on their walls. Like he's old. They look like old people. Right. So I mean if it's all kind of a long game to re-enthrone the British Empire in uh, some of the Commonwealth territories in Africa, that's well thought out on some level. Well, not just in Africa, I would I, say. I know, but yeah. just that's his preference. That's their, their… That's where he says he loves. Like right. his heart is there. Right. And she does not get a vote in this endeavor. Um, no, I get it, but I, I, I think that I'm more attracted to this story if I feel like they're going to go full rebel, you know, like I really want to see it go all the way. I want to see the, the, whatever the royal version is of the tell all book. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason that I have trouble getting all the way there to care why you might have to talk me into it in subsequent, uh, episodes of the podcast is that I, do, I can't feel yet that they're ready to set the whole thing on fire. Mm-hmm. But they're closer than I thought they'd be. That's a really interesting point, And I, I love it because I do think, obviously, I think the way she's been treated by the certain members of the tabloid media in the UK has been appalling. And the dog whistling is, is fucking gross. Like it's, I think we can agree on that, right? Look, it's disgusting. It's, it's vile. I don't think it's unexpected. No. I don't think anybody can clutch their pearls and be like, oh, I never. Right. We knew they were vile. And they were like, let us rise to the challenge of showing you how fucking vile well, we I can be. Well, I do think, I think that the rest of the world has a certain impression of England because of the royal family. So because of accents, I think that maybe not you, Joanna, but I think in especially North America, because of the way they speak and the accents and the crowns and whatever, we, we think of England as a certain elevated society, that there isn't a, a crassness. Um, and they sell themselves to be that way too, right? Like poshness. The, if the, the you word. only consume, if royals are your only consumption, 
of the UK. And Downton Abbey. Yeah. Then, <laughs> yes, I see what you're saying. Yeah. If you ever open up the Daily Mirror webpage or the Daily Mail or whatnot, yeah. then you'd, you'd figure it out right quick. Listen, I, I love reading stories about, and I think you and I share this, I love reading stories about the UK and the shit that happens on an airline there. I think it's Ryanair. That's Ryanair is Irish. <laughs> okay. And I will defend its chaviness till the day I die. But yes. But you use the word chaviness. 100%, because... even though it's Irish, and they would not say that. <laughs> but some of the fucking stories coming out of what happens on Ryanair flights are amazing. And it's like English people, not just Irish people, flying Ryanair. And it is the best trash. If you. We don't have time for this, but nonetheless, <laughs> Ryanair is basically a bus in the air. Like, it doesn't have assigned seats, and it's like a party bus going to Spain or whatnot. Yeah. The seats are made of plastic. I've flown Ryanair, and the pilot basically, like, shouted down <laughs> at the passengers like he was a high school principal. Yeah. We don't stand for that kind of behavior. Yeah. Um, it was amazing. Yeah, there yes. are people fucking on the plane. Yep. There's always, like, a red-faced loser named... Give me many, a name. Many red-faced losers <laughs> named Garrett, yes. They Garrett, who are getting into fights. But I think that there is this illusion in other parts of the world about the UK because of the accents and the tea that is, it's like a, a very genteel society. And so what I'm saying is, of course, as you said, this couldn't have been unexpected. And yet, I think that their racism jumps out differently. Or at least their racism jumped out in a not as obvious way as where you typically associate North American racism. But then I guess I say not as obviously to whom. Because they're making this documentary initially for ITV, initially for the Brits who to a certain extent are going to be yeah and. Yeah. In order for this to have the, like, shock effect that Mm -hmm. I think they're expecting. And, you know, it's been a while since we had one of these documentaries that's like a, you know, the the talk heard around the world kind of thing. Yeah. It has to resonate with everybody outside of the UK and of the Commonwealth, right? So I guess that's the question of whether that's going to be achieved and whether there's sort of almost a a worldwide groundswell, not to be too, you know, grandiose about it, that's going to get them the backing and support that I think they're going to need in order to be, A, the hard done by royals, and B, to get the affection of the young British people, which, as you point out, then secures their their royalness for at least another generation or two. Yeah, but to your point earlier about setting everything on fire, that racism note that I was saying is, you know, they haven't quite stepped to literally like blowing shit up. And that is where, of course, I was saying I'm with them. Definitely. It's been disgusting how they've been treated, but I don't know that they've come right out and named it. You know what I mean? Like in those interviews, in the documentary, they've talked about the tabloid treatment. They've talked about the coverage. They've talked about how unfair it is. They haven't called it what it is. Well, Name it. Well, yeah, but I wonder about that because partly I think the quote that jumped out most for me, and at recording time, we haven't seen more than clips of the doc, right? We know that we're going to see it, as you say, when this podcast airs. The line that jumped out to me was a Megan line that says that they are merely existing, Mm -hmm. not living. 
Right. And that's a thing that Diana used to say all the time, right? That she was trapped in a cage, that she couldn't go anywhere. Right. That it's a it's golden handcuffs. Choose your your Fishbowl, allegory yeah. euphemism. Um, so I think first you have the familiar, right? Like they're really if I was being cynical, and I'm not trying to be, I guess this is the other question. Let's say that they have a very legitimate complaint that the tabloids in the media have been vile, mm-hmm. that there are dog whistles and barely disguised racism all over the place. Yeah. Yes. All legitimate complaints. Mm-hmm. They're also taking some very calculated plays from the playbook of the 90s, of the empathy for Harry's mother. Mm-hmm. And, like, is that positive because they're like, look, we're repeating history? Or is it calculated or is it both? I'd like to think it's a bit of both. It's definitely an emotional decision. Like, they, these two are very emotional. It's very raw. They're angry. They're affected as anybody would be. But instead of not showing that, they're like, no, we want you to see. Mm-hmm. And I get that. And I'm so down with that. However, all I'm saying is we need to identify things for what they are now. Is that strategy, though? If they yeah, come out and sure. say these comments are racist, these comments are classist and racist and uh you know they they are basically it's it's pointing out uh, the prejudice that has existed mm-hmm. just under the surface right a lot of people don't react well to that as you know somebody right. says something is racist somebody else says eh, you're always complaining and what else do you yeah. want and blah 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 right they say this is so much like what diana went through like what my mother went through and the whole nation, the whole world, in fact, taps into the pain from falls over sobbing because she was beautiful and struck down, and uh, it was a beautiful tragedy. I'm just, I, I don't know. Well, are you convincing yourself <laughs> uh, of what? I'm, I'm, I'm saying that that is they're using her and the fresh memories of what her life was like. As a touchstone, yeah, to get people to pay attention. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what I think about that. Is all I'm saying, which doesn't make for a great discussion point. But I'm yeah. just, uh, I'm, I'm walking this weird line of like, well, they're media savvy. They are. They should be media savvy. So they're using what they have at their disposal, and then what? And then. As to to go back to your original point, to what end? To what end? And yeah. uh, because, as you have said in different contexts about different famous people, do you get to have it both ways? Right. Do you get to live your life, which is utterly and completely by the people, ostensibly for the people, and then say it's too much, it's too close? I just like to know what that strategy is. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, because everybody is at a heightened emotional state here, like the fans, the haters, all that. You're not saying that this is a calculated, they're using his mother. No, it's a real I'm not connection. Saying, I'm not saying they're exploiting no. his mother. Yeah. I, but I'm saying they're using the tools at their disposal. Mm-hmm. They are correct in invoking a, a 
a kind of a worldwide pain that was felt uh, spontaneously. Right. In order to go, like, look, this is what we are and continue right. to go through. Legitimately. But now what? Yes. To what end? What do you want? How will you change it? You guys let us know. What is the end game here? I'm curious. I really am. Because they have to have an end game beyond the next 18 months or three years, right? <laughs> Another so. superhero reference. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Look at me. All over the place. So when we come back in, uh, this whole show seems to be about roles that have been lived and what happens when somebody new lives in them again. And when we come back, we will talk about uh, the upcoming Little Women and what Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet have in their well-worn roles that maybe nobody else has had. So last week in our first episode of the season, I was stressing you out because I was like, it's award season, the Emmys were just over, all these movies are coming out, we have so much homework to do. And one of the most highly anticipated contenders expected to contend um, everywhere this season is Greta Gerwig's adaptation of Little Women, starring Saoirse Ronan as Joe. Timothy Chalamet is Laurie. Uh, Meg is being played by Emma Watson. Emma Watson. Amy is Florence Pugh. Mm -hmm. Meryl Streep is Aunt March. Yes. And Laura Dern is mom. Marmy, yes. Um, anyway, it comes out of Christmas. Uh, we have seen a trailer. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's great. You uh, you wrote the trailer, yeah? Uh-huh. You mean I wrote the article yeah. on the site? I did not write. <laughs> No, you didn't write the trailer. You wrote the article on this on LaneyGossip.com on um, about the trailer. And anyway, we've talked about this when the cast was first announced. Remember, Emma Stone was in it and then dropped out. Um, but now we have the cast, or at least the two leads, uh, Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet, being interviewed on the cover of the new Entertainment Weekly with lots and lots of great work, juice, and meat and Guts to Get Into by Greta Gerwig. And I sent this to you and I was like, come on. Yeah, you did. And what's interesting is, uh, yeah, we usually stack the deck in our emails to one another with like, we have to talk about this because blah, blah, blah. And actually at the end of this podcast, I'm going to talk about the story that we didn't talk about. Well, first um, of all, I was trying to hook you too because Saoirse Ronan is your darling. Yeah, I love her. But, <laughs> um, but it's interesting because... I was all excited to open this article and read all about the work that we have in here. That's not what I got from this article, which is really interesting. I got it from Greta. Uh, to a certain extent, yes. So let's lay it on the table. Little Women, talk about the Joker, talk about the Royals. Little Women has been done. Like mm -hmm. there's been adaptation after adaptation. There's been animations. There have been... I don't know if there is a, for a lot of people, the definitive Little Women is the 1994 uh, Winona Ryder, Susan Sarandon, Claire uh, A lot of people Claire grew Dates. up on it. Yeah. Yeah. But is it, is it the ultimate? Is it the quintessential? I don't know if it is in that way. I know a lot of people who are younger than I am. Um, who really connected to that version. I liked it, but I don't know that I was like euphoric over it. How Look, about that? Did you love the book? Did you read the book? Love the book. As a as a young person. Yes. Uh, I haven't read it in 
10 years. It's real good. I actually had a copy originally that was so old. Somebody bought it for me at like a garage sale. It was an antique that it actually stopped at the end of part one, like halfway through. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just choked on my wine. Yeah. How, what do you do? I, I went and got Good Wives, which is the second v- part <sighs> of Little Women uh, it literally ends on that line. They were that no was long- like old days where you couldn't type something into your device and get it. You had to go somewhere and look for it. Went to a bookstore. Yeah, I had a no. I have a cold I, sweat is breaking out. I'm right gonna now. dig through something and see if I still have that book. It is an old, old yellow and green brown covered fabric covered book that tracks. Yeah, it yeah. sure does. Um, so the story meant an incredible amount to me, means an incredible amount to millions upon millions of people. Yes. There's an amazing This American Life about it that came out a few weeks ago that is, uh, we can't do it justice to talk about, but I'll link to it because it's so touching. This woman, suffice to say, grew up on it because it was the only book she had and she went to extreme lengths to read it. But yeah, I don't know if there was a film rendition that was it in the same way. And so what I got from this article with Chalamet and Saoirse Ronan, because this is now their second, third, second, third movie together, what was the other one that wasn't Lady Bird? It hasn't come out yet. Uh, Fine. So it was both their second and third movie together for the sake of argument. But this article is really... uh, really is about their friendship and their connection that they have, which is they refer to it as sibling-y at some point, but it also feels a bit flirty and it's, there's chemistry, right? There's chemistry, but it's not, it, it transcends traditional or conventional or boring romantic love. What I guess I'm getting at is that that is stacking the deck for little women. So, like, think about Greta Gerwig, for example. So she does Lady Bird. Yeah. All of a sudden, all of these opportunities are coming her way, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're her and you want to choose really carefully and all of a sudden there are assignments you would have dreamed of Mm -hmm. coming at you, if you're going to make something like Little Women, you have to make, you have to know that you can kill it. Do you know what I mean? You have to know that you can knock it out of the park. And I think she wouldn't have done it if she didn't have the secret weapon that is the chemistry between these two. Well, I really like the part in the article where Greta says that, you know, she went to pitch the movie. And Amy Pascal says of of Greta's approach, quote, Greta had a very specific, energized, kind of punk rock Shakespearean take on this story. She came in and had a meeting with all of us and said, I know this has been done before, but nobody can do it but me. Mm-hmm. Like, I know you're Greta Gerwig. I know you've just come off Lady Bird, but to go in and be like, ah, uh, yeah, no one but me. I love that. Right. But I argue, uh, like, I love it too, but I argue that the reason that nobody can do it but her is because she has these two. And she has this thing between the two of them that is arguably lightning in a bottle right? There's another part later in the article where they talk about how uh, in in the film, uh, Gerwig and the costumer, Jacqueline Duran, had the actors switch clothes throughout yes. filming 
to reinforce the masculine-feminine fluidity between Joe and Lori. They are two halves, as Pascal puts it. These are really bold characters that are different than you've seen them before. That's an ambitious, ambitious idea for these really entrenched characters. And you can't take that on as a director if you don't know you have the actors to pull Mm -hmm. it off. I'd be terrified. So I, I like that she's like, oh, I have the secret weapon here, you know? I like that too. And I like that she was able to, because she has worked with these actors before and because she's, you know, very confident as we've established in her vision in this film, I love that there's this part in here where she was like, oh, no, no, we treated the text as Bible. Mm -hmm. So when I wrote this, I lifted from the source material and I wrote the dialogue so precisely to honor the source material that there was no improvisation. You had to deliver script to the word. And it's not that like, you know, most screenplays aren't delivered to the word and you can speak to this more, Duanna. But to insist as a director that you like, you're not changing the, uh, then, there, whatever. It has to be delivered the way you see it on paper. You know who else did this, um, is known to do this, is Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, he's given the reverence and the dick sucking and the ass kissing that comes with Tarantino or whatever. But they make a thing out of Tarantino's dialogue where that becomes a story. This is just one little small overlooked, probably will be detail in an article in Entertainment Weekly, and it won't be fucking like disseminated through the course of the campaign and the promotion for this film. But I love that she was like, oh no, no, not because I think my words are brilliant, but because the source text is brilliant and we are honoring that. But, and also whatever word that is, they say in improv, yes, and... I think partly it's because everybody knows that source text so well, yeah. right? It's uh, it's like Anne of Green Gables in that way. But also, this is what's been so interesting to me when we were talking about the casting of this film. Emma Watson is playing Meg. And Emma Watson is, I'm just going to call it, Emma Watson is too big an actor to be playing such a small part. Mm-hmm. But Gerwig goes into how they built out Meg's life more and Meg's personality more, that has two purposes, right? That makes it a more interesting movie and it gives something for Emma Watson to do. Mm -hmm. It justifies her being there and her paycheck. Yeah. But all the more reason to be as faithful as possible to the dialogue that is there so that in the places where you are improvising, building, making something new, that it feels like it's born of the same place. Does that make sense? Yeah, but also what I love about that, I mean, I think we're doing the same thing here is layering compliment on top of compliment. Meg traditionally wasn't a big part, but you hire either a Meg, like as you mentioned, an Emma Watson or sorry, an Emma Stone or an Emma Watson for this and you know you can't shove them in the corner. But she's doing it with a relevance. As she says, quote, we felt it was important to show Meg juggling all her roles, a mother, a wife, a sister, whilst also celebrating her dreams, despite them being different to those of her sisters. And 
what she's done here is she's like, oh, no, no, but this is germane to women now. Whether or not you're living in the time of little women or when you're, whether like you're living in 2019, like you do have an older sister who feels like she's a mother figure to her sisters, but also has her own children and her own very internal life that is often overlooked. But, and, and is, uh, like, I know, it, we can keep saying but, but, yeah. yeah, but also that vast difference between the Megs and Joes of the world never got in the way of them connecting. Does that make sense? Like, yes. those two were each other's contemporaries. That's what I think is the smartest thing about it, is showing them wanting different things and that being okay. It's essentially the mommy wars. Yeah. Um, in, you know, Civil War era Connecticut or wherever it is, uh, that it's okay that they love each other even though they <laughs> want different things, that they allow each other to be yeah. different is kind of the message of the book. But yeah, I'm going to just go ahead and say Meg's up to this point have gotten short shrift. Uh, even if you think about the 1994 version, Joe, Beth, and Amy were all names, mm -hmm. as was Marmy. Uh, God bless Trini Alvarado, who played Meg, but she was not um, yeah. it, because it wasn't required, you know? So yeah. I like that there's a new take, but that to me is why you're so faithful and rigid to the dialogue that is and the dialogue in the text, yeah. because then people trust you to build out around it. So here's where I'm going to try and make a connection because while we started or around the same time we started recording this podcast, a story came out about Martin Scorsese in The Hollywood Reporter, and I don't know, whatever, she's still dumping on, like, Marvel movies. Um, <laughs> but also, he's at some whatever film festival, and he's asked about his um, lack of female characters. Uh-huh. Scorsese movies don't no. often. And, in fact, I'm not going to whatever, but Sharon Stone in Casino is really what is the only woman like, who comes to mind to have, like, a prominent Yeah, she's place, the right? memorable one. Yeah. Lorraine Bracco in um, Goodfellas. Hang on. Uh, she's fine. Uh, she's, look, I love that movie. I love Lorraine Bracco. But yeah. the, the, the acting is wonderful, but the role Karen is typical. Yeah. yeah. Karen's, Karen has no agency. No. How about that? So, um, so this article, or this thing comes out, he says this, he's asked about his lack of female characters at this film festival, and it says... Um, it says, uh, uh, what his response is, if the story doesn't call for it, it's a waste of everybody's time. If the story calls for a female character lead, why not? <laughs> Are you going to be okay? I mean... <laughs> Are you... <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, look, uh, uh, no. So here's how I'm relating to relating it. Right. Because as you just mentioned in previous iterations of little woman, Meg, let's take the Meg cause we've been focusing yeah, yeah, on yeah. Meg hasn't been broadened out as much as Greta appears to be broadening out the Meg character mm -hmm. going from text. Yep. Does the story call for it? Well, people seem to be perfectly happy in 1994 without having a prominent Meg. And I probably, if Greta Gerwig had done this movie and there wasn't a prominent Meg who had 
a more fleshed out storyline as it does. Nobody would be Nobody storming would be with fucked. pitchforks. No. But she found a way. Yes. Didn't she? She did uh, because the inner lives of women are fascinating to her, right? Because the story is there. And I mean, to a certain extent, I can kind of go, okay, that's just not where Scorsese's life lives. He doesn't think of, of uh, you know, with the exception of Laurie in Little Women, the men are kind of two-dimensional. They're not really, like, the story doesn't call for it, right? Right. There aren't dozens of men. This isn't Pride and Prejudice, even. And I always loved that, that they were a complete and total ecosystem without, uh, if if the story called for it, but the story doesn't call for it, ergo, those men aren't there. So I'm happy to let those people be in their own, like, ecosystems, except that one of them is considered to be, you know, one of the greatest American filmmakers of the modern era. Right. Ahem. So uh, to pull a you, I would, say, I, I would love to talk about the, like, the takeaway here, the Gerwig takeaway is that she's been given this old, fusty project. And like I said, like you don't take that on without knowing how many eyes are going to be on you and that you can't fuck it up, but you have to do it well, but you have to be faithful, but not too faithful and so forth. And I, I think that like, I don't know what checks and balances she had. I don't know what the words were that she used to be like, does this belong in my little women or not? But I think that that's a really good thing when you are the kind of person uh, who maybe is talking into the microphone right now who has all kinds of ideas about how this is stupid. The way we do things is dumb. I'm going to set things on fire and I'm going to redo everything. We should fix this and that and the other. It's like, or go gentle, like blend the old and the new. Find the way to make the old thing feel fresh and, you know, gently revitalized and so forth. Is there a way, like, what do people do? Because I am a bull in a china shop where that kind of thing is concerned. Yeah. I don't know what the the touchstone is, the mantra is to go a little bit at a time. Let's just, like, pace ourselves, go gently. I, I don't know what the, what the phrase is. If you have one out there and you're listening, tell us. And if you have one that you've been holding out for me, tell me. Well, no, Duanna. Like, I mean… I don't know that you take a sledgehammer to Louisa May Alcott. I look, uh, here's another comparison that comes to mind. It's, uh, it's Sophia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. Oh, I love that you brought this up because I feel like we have synergy because in the article I wrote about this entertainment weekly profile of Sersha and Timothy and Greta, I related this little woman to Marie Antoinette. I did not know that. I know. Well, there you go. Um, but, you know, even though I think there was probably a lot of uh, faithfulness and adherence to what we knew and know about Marie Antoinette, the, you know, the the reaction at the time was, oh, it's too far. It's too... Frothy. Frothy. It's not... It's not Punk rock. Disrespectful is the wrong word, but it's like, yeah, it's, it's making it... Uh, L-I-T-E. Yeah. Yeah. Ineffectual and all the rest of it, right? And I suspect this movie is going to avoid that charge. Well, you know, uh, movies of a certain period always have a certain color scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Keira Knightley's Pride and Prejudice, Mm, mm -hmm. which I think you do too. I do, yeah. But 
Austin movies always have. It's all washed out. Like you feel that everything has been washed in the same soap. Right? Like between that film and Sense and Sensibility and even Gwyneth Paltrow's Emma, they all have a certain color thing. And I think it's the same with whatever, England movies. Like England (laughs) royal movies. Yes, I know what you mean. Even um, last year's The Favorite, which we both love, was of the same color Well, they got around it by playing like the the filter almost is the washout, but they got around it with some of the of the costuming. But yes, Yes. I know what you mean. Like Rachel Vice's clothes, all the blacks and blues and everything, and the like suspenders and this and that. But I think with with Marie Antoinette, of course, you had instead of having that color wash of that era, she made it shockingly pink. Yes, and blindingly like blindingly teen. Yes. Because she was a teen. Yeah. Marie Antoinette was a teenager. And it was fun. And you actually reminded me of something else altogether. Uh, You remember uh, Dangerous Liaisons, of course. Oh, I love that movie. And you know that there was an almost exactly the same movie was made around the same time, Valmont. Yes. Right? Um, And the, the thing is that the Valmont version, arguably, if you, like, ask film experts, was better. Uh, sure. Uh, what? I I love Dangerous Liaisons to the point where, yeah, I, like, nothing is going to, about that story, be better than that film for me. Uh, how about Colin Firth and Annette Benning and Meg Tilly and Feruza Balk? Like, it was great. But it was done more in the way that you're talking about. It was more saturated color. Mm-hmm. You felt more like you were there. Yeah. You weren't watching on like a tintype at Pioneer Village. Right. Uh, and I think that at that time, one of the reasons that Dangerous Liaisons was seen as the better film is that it sort of adhered more to that. But then Little Women has never been that. Little Women has always felt shockingly relevant, even though it's Civil War era, right? There's a yeah. reason people read it over and over again, all the time. Is Do you think Greta's version will have a little bit more of a contemporary Instagram look? 100%. Yeah. Um, in warmth, in visual, you can already hear it in the way they speak, right? Like there's not that mid-Atlantic accent that, uh, that comes over period pieces sometimes. Yeah. They're speaking like people. Um, <laughs> and so... I think that's going to, yes, I, I think there will be more of that. I think there will be more, I don't know this, but I, I'm sure in the trailer I've internalized like almost shots like from Boyhood. Remember Boyhood was yeah. all saturated mm-hmm. like boy, skin, green grass, big blue sky. Yeah. I suspect there's going to be more of that like wide, wide world thing happening. Are is Is it possible for this movie to fail? Like, it's such a favorite. She has her secret weapons in Timothy and Saoirse. Um, You know, Amy Pascal is out here stumbling for her. Are we... Well, what are your benchmarks for success? uh, In this case? Yeah. That it become the definitive little women. Okay. Nothing less. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that's a very clear and precise benchmark for success. Mm -hmm. I like this. There are some people we work with. Mm-hmm. Um, I will name her. Um, our site manager, Emily, uh-huh. who, uh, as we know, wasn't happy about this. She was like, why do we need this? 
She is one of those people who adores the Winona Ryder version. That's fine. Grew up on it, raised by it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there are people out there who will be like, I comparing this to the Winona Ryder version. Um, so let's start there. Mm-hmm. Will it be better than the Winona Ryder Christian Bale version? I'm going to say yes. Yes. Will it be the definitive? Like, this is the one you meet. Again, I have to I have to say yes only because I don't know Greta Gerwig. I haven't like I've walked past her in a hallway and yeah. yet I think I know her. Like listen, we've agreed Greta Gerwig's um Little Women is not going to be Jared Leto's Joker. No, no, no. <laughs> but what I'm trying to get at is yeah. of all the projects that they spread in front of her. Mm-hmm. You know that they gave her like here's this, and here's, I don't know, the Clueless remake, and here's whatever else. What do you want? You don't choose this project unless, as you pointed out that she said, unless you go, I can do this. I'm the one. And only I can do this, and we need this now. So is it the one? Has to be. You're saying yes. I think it has to be. Okay. And... And and so, I mean, Jared Leto had the same perspective too, right? To go back to the beginning, Jared Leto thought that he would be the definitive Joker. So you go, both Greta and Jared are going in with the same ambition. I, or or Greta and Jared and, and, and maybe Harry and Meghan while we're at it, yeah. Sure. But uh, yeah, or Jared hoped to be, yes. Um, so what is going to be the difference? Since you are basically declaring it for Greta, mm-hmm. what's the difference? I, you know what? I don't know. And it's, it's a little bit apples to oranges because she, he's saying, I feel that I am the Joker, right? Mm-hmm. Like he has all these other things that were ostensibly out of his control. The script, the production, the whatever. She has much more control over all the parts of this film. Yeah. So she has a better chance than he does regardless. And she's seeing it as a whole thing as opposed to him feeling that character in his bones, one assumes. And it's not like he wanted to do the the Joaquin Phoenix version. He just didn't want that version to exist. It's not like he lost it on a part. But I think you nailed it way back. Greta, while she does have all the control... She went into it with her two, like, power superstars. Yeah, for sure. Whereas Jared was, I can do this. I can do this. Alone. And I will piss off all the people I have to work with. But also, again, I keep saying, like, they would have given her any movie to make if she just wanted to work with Saoirse and Timothy again. She could have made anything. But she knows that to take on Little Women is a big-ass deal and it's got to be big-ass great? Oh, I mean, she's fucking aiming for... As, what, what did you say earlier? Swinging for the fences. Mm-hmm. It's two swings here. One just struck out, and the other is probably going to hit a grand slam. It reminds me... It's a little bit like Black Panther-esque, right? Like, there's a lot riding, and so you got to make it all the things to all the people. But I think she's shrewd. I don't think she would take it on if she didn't think she could do it. I'm not waiting for you to see this. So what does that mean? No, so, the proper way that friends <laughs> open that sentence is they say, "Hey, when should we go?" No, because I already know you. You're not going to want to see it on opening day, Christmas day, and I'm going to be there. 
Wait, wait, wait. Okay, first of all, uh, no, I'm not going Christmas Day. Why are you going Fine, Christmas 26. Day? Fine, we can go on the 26th. But the way that we do that, Elaine, is Afternoon. we ask our friend. We say, hey, <laughs> would you like to go to the movie on the 26th? Yes, I would. I know you'll have our tickets booked by November the 5th anyway. I will pick our seats. I know you will. Trust me. And I already, you know, and you have to concede that I, the theater I love is now the theater you love. It's a good theater. Yeah. It's a bit of a it's pain in the ass to get to, but it's worth it. the best theater. Yes. Um, okay. All right. Well, uh, you know, this has been rollicking. Are you picking up your phone for a round of uh of Didn't we say we're going to do that? All right. One quick one. Do, are we doing one each so that each, like, people can see who gives the better better clues? Your pettiness is amazing. <laughs> so for people who don't know, and we'll post a video, uh, this is a game that's played with your phone up on your own forehead. The person who is guessing cannot see what the clues are, and the other person is feeding them the information. What are we doing? What category? Blockbuster movies or uh, icons, legends, and stars? Uh, give me superstars. Fine. Icons, legends, and stars or superstars? I, I, I don't care. Super, whichever. Icons, legends, and stars. Fine. Okay. What do we have? A minute? Yeah. Oh, okay. So she is British and she's a dame and she's wonderful and short. Judy Dent. Yes. Uh, he had a show that was live on CNN. He has big glasses and suspenders. Larry King. Yes. Uh, she, I feel bad about my neck. She wrote uh, Heartburn. Oh, she was. Nora Ephron. Yes. Uh, he it directed Titanic. He's Canadian. James Cameron. Yes. Uh, he, uh, was an actor. He's very British and famous and old. Uh, he's, uh, Lawrence Olivier. Yes. Fuck, I'm good. Uh, they made planes. They created planes. Boeing. Uh, older than that. The very first people to create planes. The brothers. Uh, who were? Wright brothers. Yes. Uh, he was a cowboy and there's a restaurant chain for him in the States and it's alliterative. It starts with the same letter. Jack Jones. No, different letter. Uh, Billy Bob. Like he probably has a lasso. Skip it. Uh, in. Um, okay. So my score is two, three, seven. Oh, okay. So she. I got six. Okay. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. Here we go. My turn. Um, one of the three in nine to five, not Jane Fonda or Dolly. Uh, uh, Lily Tomlin. Yes. Um, uh, classic fifties and sixties movie star, beautiful, smoked a lot. Betty Davis. Uh, male. Uh, uh, died in a Porsche accident. Oh, God. Car accident. Uh, um, comedian on HBO, crusty Friday nights on HBO. Um, has a political show, real oh, time. Uh, oh, Bill Maher. Um, oh, God, writes musicals. Uh, <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> Into the Woods. Uh, fucking, uh, uh, oh. Maybe that's not him. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> um, pass. <laughs> <laughs> the original mystique in X-Men, Blue... Blue, married to Jerry O'Connell. Oh, Rebecca Romaine. Yes. Stamos person. Yes. Yes, good. <laughs> well, let's see here. 
It, what's Stephen Sondheim? Sondheim. Yes. Isn't that Into the Woods? Yes. Oh my I, God, I knew that. Yes, but I got two Wait. answers, everybody. <laughs> you decide. Can you make that stop noising? Yes. Okay. So I... Uh, let's, you decide. You decide who delivered clues in a timely and concise fashion. I was really good at guessing. I fucking guessed the Wright brothers. You did well with your guesses. And Laurence Olivier. Mm-hmm. That one was that Old one. I'll give you. That British was, actor is yes. basically what you said. Because I didn't want to say Lawrence of Arabia because I thought that was kind of cheating. Anyway, fine. Um, we have no financial interest, by the way, in Heads Up. So if we're not, not trying to get all. you to to download it but if you do please enjoy send us videos Uh, on that note we have had a lot to talk about I think I sometimes we talk about whether or not we need to be hardcore on theme but I think it's clear here that the theme here is like you can think the role is yours uh but if you have to change it or be a different way so as not to compete with somebody or be in their shadow, like go a different way, change your role, do your thing your way. You do you to say a phrase that you hate. Like my role is a better guesser. Uh, no. And your uh, role is a better clue giver. Your role Great. is somebody who benefits from the clues given. On that note, thank you so much for listening. We have loved your responses to uh, the new episode the new song and all the rest of it please keep all your thoughts and responses coming and please also wherever you get your podcasts leave comments and reviews the feedback means so much to us but also it helps other listeners find our podcast and we are thirsty and uh we would like to build our audience until next time uh criticize your friends for their trivia show your work and work hard see you next time bye up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com